Amen. You may be seated. And I again want to say thank you for singing wholeheartedly and full-throatedly. I am so blessed to hear you sing. It's a blessing to any pastor, I think, but, but to hear you all, to know where many of you are in life, the struggles that you're going through, the pains that you're, you're dealing with, uh, the weeks that you've had, the months that you've had, and to hear you sing, affirming your, your belief and your trust in the Lord, uh, you ministered to me, and that's why corporate uh, worship and, and congregational singing is such a blessing. Um, so thank you um, from your pastor. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for singing. Um, We're going to look at Matthew chapter 17 this morning. Matthew chapter 17. So I invite you to take your Bibles and turn there. And as you make your way there, I have two questions for you to to ask you. And the, the first question is this. What's your agenda here this morning? What's your agenda here? Now, you might say, Jason, I don't have an agenda. I came here to worship. Well, that's kind of an agenda, but we'll set that aside. Uh, I came here to... So I'm not saying agenda in just the negative sense. Like, why are you here? What do you hope to gain from being here? Do you hope to receive some encouragement? Do you hope to hear from God and be blessed? Do you hope to be challenged or convicted Maybe you come here bringing something that you've asked the Lord. Lord, I'm dealing with this. I hope that that you'll speak to me and and give me some clarity or some wisdom or some comfort. Maybe you have an agenda. Um, Oftentimes what we find, however, is that God has his own agenda. And it's not to say that those concerns or those questions are not valid. I think if we're honest, if, if we distinguish between the agenda, it's not that the things that we're concerned about are the problem. Where we get tripped up is we think we know how those problems ought to be dealt with. That's the secret agenda, the hidden agenda. We have the things that we hope God will do, but we also have the ways that we hope God will do them. And that's usually where we struggle So that's the first question. What's your agenda? What what do you hope to get out of this morning? Why are you here? But the second question is uh, a question that uh, it reminds me of of some of you. Some of you have walked the earth long enough to remember this commercial. That's that's a nice way to put it, right? (laughs) All right. Some of you have walked the earth long enough to remember. Do you remember Wendy's had a commercial where you already know where it's going, right? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, you just ate, you just dated yourself. But for those who don't know, Wendy's had a commercial many, many centuries ago. <laughs> many, many years ago, and it was a campaign to try to convince consumers that if they wanted a burger where they would get their money's worth and not some little hamburger patty that you barely see, which is amazing. Now, you know smash burgers are a thing now, and I've, and I've looked at that, and, and it's like paper-thin hamburger, and I thought, we've come full circle now to where we're eating paper burgers. But anyway, uh, and the commercial was, that there was this elderly woman, and she would open it up, the burger, and she'd say, where's the beef? <laughs> right? 
something's missing from this burger. And so the question here is, where's the glory? Where's the glory in your life? Where is the, the, trans, the, the, the transformative, amazing, stupendous, uh, earth-shattering, world-shaking glory in your life? It's a good question. I ask these two questions because I think our text this morning answers both of them in ways that we don't expect and we see ourselves in Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 13. And this is the passage of Jesus' transfiguration on the mountain. And this is a momentous event in the Gospels and in the life of the church. It's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I think you can make a case that John alludes to it when he says, We beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten. But the transfiguration of Jesus is this monumental event and when we look at it, there, there's so much we can, we can take away from it. And so we have to almost pick and choose because it's such a rich passage. But this morning, I want us to look at the transfiguration from three different angles. So we're going to look at the same event from three different angles. And we're going to ask these questions about our agenda, about the glory in our lives. But before we do that, it's been a while since we've been in Matthew and so a refresher course, kind of the context might be helpful. Um, in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20, you have the revelation that, that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus affirms that this is true, right? That that's who he is and that this is something that Jesus was going to build his church on this proclamation of Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says that the Father revealed this to Peter. And so Peter has this, this revelation from the Father. But then Peter, in verses 21 through 23, gets it wrong. Remember we talked about he soared on the heights and then he crashed so hard. Because Jesus begins to explain that as the Messiah, he would suffer, die, and rise again on the third day. And at this, Jesus is rebuked by Peter. Peter says, no, that, that's not going to happen. But then Peter is rebuked by Jesus. And what does he say? Get behind me, Satan. You're concerned about God's concerns, about human concerns and not God's concerns. And so, what is going on with Peter? Peter is saying, you're the son of the living God. You're the Messiah. That means you, you, you have glory. You are the promised one. You, you are the great one. The one that we've been waiting for. There's no way that, that someone so glorious and so great would be subjected to uh, such a degrading, humiliating, and lowly event such as dying let alone suffering, being mocked, being by all appearances unvictorious. But Jesus tells the disciples that we get to verses 24 through 28 that the way to follow him is not first through triumphal glory, but through the way of the cross. That's the way Jesus is going to go. But all along, notice Peter's not wrong. It's not that the glory isn't there. 
Because notice in verse 16, I mean, in verse 27 of chapter 16, Jesus says, The Son of Man is going to come with the angels in the glory of his Father. The glory's there. Peter's just getting the order wrong. He's misunderstanding the glory. But it's not that the glory is absent. And the passage closes with Jesus telling, in chapter 16, closes with Jesus telling some of the disciples, you will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And if you go back, if you remember, in the sermon on that passage, I said, that's either a reference to the transfiguration or the resurrection. And so if you take it to be the transfiguration, what we're getting ready to see is this, ta- this, this kingdom coming, this glory coming. So, kind of summarizing the context, Peter thought that the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Messiah, should and would receive glory, and he was right. The problem, however, is that Peter got the execution, the plan for obtaining that glory, the, the, the response to that glory, the effect of that glory, that's what he misunderstood. And so when we come to Matthew 17, like I said, I want us to look at this from three different angles. The first angle is the promise angle. The promise angle. Before we dive into what the promise angle is, I want to read verses 1 through 13. It says, after six days, so this is immediately following on the events of of chapter 16, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and his brother John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured in front of them and his face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light and suddenly Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you want, I will set up three shelters here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down and were terrified. Jesus came up touched them and said, get up, don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, don't tell anyone about the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So the disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Verse 11, Elijah is coming and will restore everything, he replied. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they didn't recognize him. On the contrary, they did whatever they pleased to him. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. So we want to take this text and look at it from three different angles. And the first one is the promise angle. If you took this text, if this text was a, a washcloth and, and you wrung it out, it would be dripping with Old Testament imagery and Old Testament language. And we really don't have enough time to go through all of them. But 
Texts like Deuteronomy 18.15. What happens in Deuteronomy 18.15? That is the passage where God promises that he will raise up another prophet like Moses. Exodus 24 verse 1. Where the cloud, the, the cloud of glory comes down on the mountain. We have... Um, if you go look in Exodus 24, it says that Moses took three others with him. And here we have Jesus. It says he took Peter, James, and his brother John. Uh, in verses 15 through 18 of Exodus 24, it talks about Moses being in there and the glory of the Lord descending on a high mountain, Mount Sinai. And so you have Jesus taking up his disciples, the three, on a high mountain. And so, not just that, but, but notice the language in verse 2. It says, He was transfigured in front of them, and His face shone like the sun, and His clothes became white as the light. That, that's Moses in Mount Sinai, too. Remember, when Moses came down from Sinai, his face was glowing, and he had to wear a veil, right? But this is different because this is not Moses. Moses was affected by the glory. Jesus is radiating the glory. Moses' shine was a byproduct of being in the presence of the glory of God. Jesus is emanating the radiance of the glory of God. It says that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as the light. Here we see the glory that Jesus had before he descended and condescended to become a man. And it's not a glory that he's lost. It's still there. What we see is the, the, the thin veil between our perception of, of mere physical reality and the whole of reality is peeled back for just a moment and we see Jesus. The disciples see Jesus in all his glory. And not just that, but notice it says that he was transfigured. That, that word means that he was changed, but not like a physical change or a... Uh, he did not, he's God, he does not undergo a change, but he is now fully revealed. He, he is shown to be what he really is. But then notice not just that, that this all has echoes of Moses and Sinai, but in, in verse 3 it says, Moses and Elijah appeared to him, talking with him, right? But then look at verse 5. It says, while they were speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered or, or overshadowed. That, that's a special word that occurs in the, the, uh, the cloud of the glory that, that overshadowed Mount Sinai. So you have this new... Uh, so you, we've heard a Jewish reader reading Matthew's gospel is hearing all these... We've seen this movie before. That's the point. This all sounds familiar. We know what happened to Moses. We know what happened to Israel. We know their response. And, and you see that the disciples get the story because in verse 6, it says, When the disciples heard this, they fell down and were terrified. Israel was terrified when they saw what happened on Mount Sinai. They asked Moses to intercede for them. They were afraid. In verse 5, it says, this is my beloved son with whom I will please listen to him. That's a direct echo from Deuteronomy 18.15. That I will raise up a prophet like Moses. Listen to him. So what's going on? Well, all of this is, this language is being piled up to prove that Jesus really is the Messiah. 
He is the fulfillment of all the promises. He is the one that they have been waiting for. He is the promised Messiah, and he's the deliverer. That's what Moses was, right? A deliverer. Here, Jesus is the deliverer. And what's interesting is if you think about this passage and the witnesses that are called, you have three voices that are called to testify to Jesus being the Messiah. You have the voice of Scripture. Scripture is, is quoted or referenced left and right to support that Jesus is. But then you have the voice of Moses and Elijah. They appeared to him and they're talking with him. Now, why is Moses and Elijah appearing on the mountain? A lot of times you'll hear this explained as one represents the law, one represents the prophets, and and all the law and the prophets point to Jesus. Now, that is true. All the law and the prophets point to Jesus. But I don't think that's what's happening here. I think what's happening here is you have Moses and Elijah who are examples of the way that God's anointed leaders are often treated. Moses undergoes hardship and suffering as the leader of Israel. Elijah undergoes persecution and suffering. And later, talking about John the Baptist, John the Baptist undergoes persecution and suffering. But this Jesus as as the better Moses... Jesus has a truer, and he's not just like Moses, he's better than Moses. His glory is, is not a byproduct of something else, it's, it's his own. He, he shined it out of who he is. So we have all of these, these things that are bouncing around in our head. That, that Jesus is the Messiah, he's the promised deliverer. That's, the, that's, that's God's agenda. God has sent his Messiah. But there's still some evidence that Peter doesn't get it. Because notice what he says in verse 4. It's good for us to be here. Let's set up a tent. Let's camp out here on the mountaintop. Let's set this up as our campaign headquarters. But, but what, does, what does the incarnation show us? That God has chosen to descend from on high. That's why you see... In verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain. So there is a sense in which we we still have to have our, our understanding corrected. That yes, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the deliverer. But he's also coming and he will suffer. That's what he tells them, isn't it? He's told them that he will be killed. That he will be raised on the third day. But then look, it says, as they were coming down the mountain, he says, don't tell anyone about the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And he says, just like Elijah and John the Baptist suffered, in the same way the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. That's where the disconnect was in Peter and the disciples' minds. They had the agenda, and they had the right agenda, but their execution and their understanding of the execution was off. But here's the thing. We have the voice of Scripture. We have the voice of Moses and Elijah. We even have the voice of Peter in the previous chapter. But just so it's clear, we have the voice of the Father himself. He says in verse 5, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. That echoes Jesus' baptism. The dove descends, the Spirit descends, and we have that same voice. So now 
We have a Mount Sinai experience where God is speaking. God's anointed is on the mountain. The people are terrified. And we know how that story ends, right? It ends with Israel, with the law, terrified of Yahweh. That's the, that's the prophetic angle, the, the, the promise angle, that, that he is the promised one. But something's different this time. We've seen this movie before, but something's different this time. Because notice what it says. There's a, there's a turn in verse 7. When, when Israel was terrified, what did God say? Do not approach the mountain. Do not touch the mountain. If you do, I might break out against you. In my, in my righteousness, right? What happens at this Mount Sinai experience? What happens when God speaks this time on the mountain? It's not just Moses meeting with God. It's God himself on the mountain. The son meeting with the father. So what's the turn that happens in verse 7? They fall face down and are terrified. Then in verse 7, Jesus came up and touched them. And said, do not be afraid. So it's not just that Jesus is the promised one. Jesus is here to do something. He's here because he's coming to save sinners. To save his people. So we have the promise angle. But the the second angle I want us to look at is the, the proclamation angle. This is... When we think about what happens in verse 7, this is, in a nutshell, the good news that God has come to save those who are condemned, those who have sinned. Under Mount Sinai, the law, we are shown that we are sinners. We are shown that we have no righteousness. We, we are shown that, that we cannot keep God's law. And so when we hear this mountaintop experience, when we see glory, we all will one day experience God's glory. If you're not a believer, you will experience His glory in judgment. If you are a believer, you experience His glory in salvation. But, but if we experience His glory under law, we're terrified. We fall down in fear. But in Jesus Christ, what does John say? The law came through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. It says Jesus came up and touched them. Don't miss how monumental that is. That on this mountaintop experience where the glory of God is being revealed and the glory of Jesus Christ, he would have every right to tell them to depart, to leave, to be afraid, to not come near. And yet, what did Jesus do? He came to draw near and he draws near to them and he comes and he touches them. And not only that, he gets up, he tells them, get up and don't be afraid. And here's what I love. It says, when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus alone. Now, has Jesus changed back to his unglorious? Did, did he lose? The, he had glory for a split second, but then he lost it again. No, it's still there. That's the whole point. Jesus has not come in the first coming to, to be this full display of his un impeded glory he he lays all that aside he leaves heaven and the perfection and the blessedness and the glory of heaven to walk as a man in the dust in the dirt among the filth of sin and squalor 
and depravity. But that glory is still there. They looked up and saw no one except Jesus alone. So the good news of this is that Jesus is there to suffer, to die, and to rise again that he might save his people. So in the transfiguration, we see the good news of Jesus Christ coming to save us. That's, that's the proclamation angle. But notice it says after that, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, don't tell anyone about the vision. Don't tell them what you've seen until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So Jesus has this glory. He had it before the transfiguration. It's revealed at the transfiguration. He has it after the transfiguration. But he also knows that he will die and rise again. That's the agenda. And that's also where the glory is. You see, Jesus comes. He's not concerned in his first coming about worldly applause or, or setting up an earthly kingdom and, and taking over and destroying the Roman army and, and kicking out all the, the physical oppressors. Now, he cares about those things, but, but he has a, a deeper agenda. He, he, he has come to save sinners but he knows what the agenda is. The death and resurrection of Jesus was not an accident. It was not something that was just kind of fell together and God said, well, let me cobble something out of this mess that happened while my son was on earth. Jesus says, don't tell anyone about the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. This, this Son of Man, that's Messianic language too. That's Daniel Chapter 10, where Daniel sees the Ancient of Days and he's, he's clothed in splendor and whiteness and uh, just dazzling bright. Again, what we've just seen in Jesus. So all of that happens. And then we get to verses 10 through 13. And, and this precipitates the disciples to ask a question. They're trying to understand. They're like, we get it. You're the Messiah. But help us out here, from our reading of Scripture, from our understanding, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Now, where are they getting from that? Where are they getting that from? They're getting it from Malachi, the book. At the end of Malachi chapter 4, it says, Remember the instruction of Moses, my servant, the statutes and the ordinances, and look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. So their, their understanding is correct. They're saying, our understanding is that Elijah comes before the Messiah, before the prophet that we've been waiting for, before the one uh, that is our great hope. And what does Jesus say? Elijah is coming and will restore everything. That's still going to happen. But he says, but in another sense, Elijah's already come. And they didn't recognize him. But they did everything that they pleased to him. And the point is, he says, in the same way the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And then they understood he was talking about the John the Baptist. So yes, he's not just the Messiah because of the witness of Peter. He's not just the Messiah because of the witness of Moses and Elijah. He's not just the Messiah because of the voice of the Father speaking from heaven. But he's also the Messiah because he's the one who follows John the Baptist, who is Elijah, 
who was promised to come before the Messiah. So he is the Messiah. He is the deliverer, come to save his people from their sins through his suffering, his death, and resurrection. And Jesus' whole point here is he's trying to correct the disciples' understanding of how the agenda will be executed. Peter says, You'll, may that never be, Lord. Jesus rebukes Peter. Jesus says, if anyone wants to come after me, let them take up their cross and follow me. You want to know what it'll be like? You'll be hated. You'll be mocked. You're signing your own death warrant. But that in no way takes away from the glory, the honor, and the greatness of who Jesus is. They treated Moses that way. They treated Elijah that way. They treated the second coming of Elijah and John the Baptist that way. And at the same way, the Son of Man was going to suffer at their hands. So where's the glory? Where, what's the agenda? I think sometimes in our Christian lives, we fail to understand what we mean by glory and what we mean by agenda. So we've looked at it from the from the promise angle and the, the proclamation angle, this good news that Jesus came to save sinners. But, but there's one other angle I want us to look at it, and it's the poetic angle. The poetic angle. And what I mean by the poetic angle is that what you see in, John, I mean, in, in Matthew 17, I think is a, if I can use this term, an allegory or a metaphor for the Christian life. Because as we said in this text, the... the the, this, this film that we only see as physical reality is peeled back and we see a deeper, more full picture of who Jesus is. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a truly poetic moment. I mean, that's what, um, that's what poetry does. Um, Samuel, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, if you know who Samuel Taylor Coleridge is, he, he wrote The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. It's a good, good little poem you could go read it uh it's pretty interesting uh but he writes about one of his fellow poets William Wordsworth he says that Wordsworth was able to turn the mind's attention from the lethargy of custom we, we, we become so familiar with things and he says that he's able to direct it to the loveliness and the wonders of the world before us he's an exhaustible treasure because he allows us to see what is often lost on us because what, and this is Coleridge's words, the film of familiarity. We have, because of the film of familiarity, we have eyes, but we do not see. We have ears that do not hear, hearts that neither feel nor understand. And the whole point of, I think, John, uh, of Matthew 17 that we see is Peter's wanting to see the glory. Peter's wanting to see this great thing. But, but then at, at one point in the passage, it says, and there, then there was just Jesus. And I think, what a picture that is of the Christian life. That we think that, that God's glory demonstrated in our lives is somehow always going to be transfiguration moments. But sometimes it's just the faithful moments of just Jesus in your life. It's in the, the ordinary, what appears to be the ordinary, plain, simple life of following Jesus. Of, of being willing to suffer. Making sacrifices to follow Jesus. And, and that's, 
where the glory is. There is a, a sense in which when we think about ourselves, if we are Peter or one of the disciples and we have our agenda corrected and the execution corrected, uh, the plan for the execution corrected, that it's a life of, of simple love, grateful obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's glory in that. Notice they come down off the mountain. The, the Christian life is not all mountaintop. Sometimes we come down from the mountain and we live among the people and we suffer willingly, gladly, because we know that's how the agenda is executed. So there, there's a poetic angle here that Jesus didn't lose the glory. It was a, a hidden glory. It was a glory that the world could not see. And maybe that's how you need to think of your Christian life. You might say, I see other people, I, I see these things happening in this church. I see these things happening in other people's lives. I see all these great miraculous things, but I don't see any of the glory in my life. Hey, they just saw Jesus. Are you with me on what I'm trying to say? There is, a, there is a sense in which we sometimes get so caught up. And the miraculous, the, the transfiguration moments that we forget that the glory is still there when we don't have the transfiguration. Jesus didn't lose the glory. So that's the, I think, the poetic and the, the, the picturesque angle of the transfiguration. That, that what Jesus does is he, he, if we are in Christ, he, he transfigures our own lives. Right? That there, there are those moments where we see the glory, but, but when we don't, it doesn't mean it's not there. And so, speaking uh, of the poetic angle, uh, I want to close this morning with a poem by a very great poet. Um, he's an Irish poet. Uh, his name, if you try to look it up, it looks like Michael uh, Osiadhel, but he's Irish, so it doesn't sound anything like you would think. Um, it's Michael Osiadhel, Irish um, but uh, he has a poem. This is a great book. It's called Testament. And uh, the first half of the book are uh, poems based on the 150 Psalms. So they're just, they're just responses to the... So it's a great devotion to have if you're reading through the Psalms. But then the second half is on the Gospels. Uh, and he has a poem on uh, the Transfiguration. And I don't... I want to read it to you because I don't think you can find it online. You know, publishers are pretty uh, persnickety about all the, the stuff being online, and they want to make you pay for the book, right? So I don't know if you can find it online, but I, I can post a picture later. But uh, the, 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 the reason, I'm not just doing this because I, I like poetry. I mean, I do, but, but, but I want you to see, listen to the experience uh, that um, O'Shiel paints th this, uh, this idea, and especially the last lines um, as, as a picture of not just the life of Jesus, but your own life, okay? So here we go. Uh, this is called On the Mountain. When Peter, James, and John with him repair to that peak, his face turns sun-drenched bright. His clothes a dazzling white. As Moses and Elijah come from where? Are they visions? Are they really there? O oh Lord, says Peter, let us tent you three. 
But suddenly they see a cloud envelop them from the air. A baptism voice then echoes to avow, This is my son in whom I take delight. And falling down in fright, they hear that voice demand that they heed him now. And this is exactly the halfway point of the poem. And this is where we, we left. This is, this is Mount Sinai. This is the law. This is where, without Jesus, we're left terrified and afraid and apart from God. And, and we can't find our way. We're blind. We're, our faces are in the dust. And we don't know where to go. He touches, heartens them as they lie prone And says, get up and do not be afraid. Anxieties allayed when they look up there, Jesus stands alone. Such giddy heights for these three fishermen. But they must keep what happened to this four and tell no one before the Son of Man is raised from death again. God knows the depths of suffering yet to plumb. One moment from beyond has broken through. A blessed sneak preview. A trailer for his glory yet to come. Jesus doesn't leave us in our terror and in our, our fear at our sinfulness. But he, he comes. He lays down his life for us. And he knows God knew what was coming. Jesus knew what was coming, that he would lay down his life for us. He knew the suffering that was yet to come, the depths of suffering yet to plumb. He knew, but there was a sneak preview, a blessed trailer. When we think about the Christian life, does that not bring us much hope? That before the cross... Before the end of his life, before all the suffering, there was this this pierce, this preview of the glory that was to come. I don't know where you are this morning, but I asked you, what was your agenda? What are you struggling with? What were you hoping to hear this morning? Hear this. Maybe there isn't an answer. Maybe all you get this morning is a sneak preview of the glory to come. Maybe, maybe the agenda is not the issue. Maybe the execution is not the issue. Not the primary concern this morning that God wants to speak to you. Maybe you come here this morning and you're thinking, I have all these things I'm dealing with. And why, oh why, are we talking about the transfiguration of all things? Help me with hope for my bills, hope for my family, with the things I'm going through at work, with all the suffering, with all the things that are going on in the world. Is there any hope? Give me something more practical. And all you get is a taste, a glimpse, a glimmer, a trailer of the glory that is coming. What does Paul say? The sufferings, the present sufferings pale in comparison to the glory that is going to be revealed. Jesus is the Messiah who saves sinners. 
and he gives us lives that are transfigured by this glory. We get a glimpse of that glory. And maybe that's what you really needed to hear this morning. That one day the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ will be known to all. And to you, you will see it. You will behold it. And you'll thank God for it. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior this morning, where you stand is you will stand before God one day. You will face Him and you will, you will see Him in His glory, but it will not be good for you. It will be a terror. It will be horrific. It will be uh, unbearable. You will see God in the fullness of His glory in His righteous judgment. But Jesus Christ went to a cross and took that judgment for you so that if you believe in Him, if you believe He's the Son of God, that He died on the cross and rose again, and then you apply that, you appropriate that to yourself, you say, that's what I need for me to be saved. If you believe that, the Bible says that you are saved, forgiven, cleansed, and you get a sneak preview of that glory in your own life as well. So we're going to come to a time where we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And this is going to be our time of response. This is a time for us to express our gratitude and our thankfulness for Jesus laying down his life for us. And so as we usually do, uh, we're going to spend some time where you pray. You ask God, you confess your sins, ask God to, to show you where um, you haven't been living, perhaps in full obedience to him. We all have those areas. Uh, but when you're ready... And, and you feel like you can take the Lord's Supper with a clean conscience. You come, take the elements back to your seat, and we will take them together. Let me pray for you, and after I pray, you pray where you are, and come take the, the elements to your seat when you're ready. Let's pray together. Father, we could spend hours, days, months getting out the depths of what we read in Matthew 17, and, and spending... 35 minutes, God seems like barely having a, a taste, but what a good taste it's been. Lord, for the palate of our souls to taste the sweetness of, of grace, for us to have the, the promise of eternal life placed on the lips of our souls, to know how grace is revealed in Jesus Christ. Lord, that though we are sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, to know that our lives, God, even though when it appears that there's no glory, Lord, if we are in you, God, there is a glory that, that sometimes is hidden. It works behind the scenes. And Lord, for all the things that we struggle with this past week and, and the things that will come up the week ahead, Lord, for the trials, for the tribulations, for the fears, for the doubts. Lord, make our souls such that this, this short preview, this, this small glimpse will satisfy our thirst and the hungers of our souls to, to know that the King of glory laid down His life for us. And one day, if we are in Him, we will see that glory. Lord, may that sustain us. May that give us hope. Lord, for those who feel weak in their faith, 
God, those who, the text right after this talks about the faith of a mustard seed. God, maybe there's someone who says, I don't even know my faith is that big. Lord, strengthen them and help them to know that our hope is not on how, how much we reach up to you and reach out to you, but that you came, you drew near, you, you touched us, you, you lifted us up and tell us, do not be afraid. Lord Jesus, the only way that we cannot be afraid of the condemnation of the law, the only way that we cannot be afraid to stand before a holy God is because of what you did on the cross. The only way we can come to the Lord's table and not be afraid is to know that this is your body given for us for the forgiveness of sins, to establish a new covenant, to make us right with a holy God, to give us faith, hope, love, joy, all of the things that are blessings of being in Christ and knowing Christ. And so, Lord, we come to your table, not worthy, but made worthy. We come to your table, not holy, but made holy by what Jesus, what you have done for us, what you've done in us. So, Lord, we confess our sins. We confess our unfaithfulness. We confess the pride that, that underlies so much of what we do. Or whatever sin it is that, that we've that would characterize our past week. Lord, we still come knowing that the Lord's table is a promise. It is a promise made to us that while we were sinners, you died for us. We thank you, Lord. But help us to take your supper in a worthy manner, hearts assured that we are in you. God, if there's anyone here who has any doubt whether or not they are a believer, they have any doubt whether they can take the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner, God, help them to know that they, they ought to abstain. And it's better to not take it in an unworthy manner. Lord, we thank you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. As you are